0: Hi, everyone.
1: everyone. Hi, everybody. Aggies, near and
2: far.
3: Hey, everyone. I'm Marina Mountner, and I will be one of your four hosts today. In this episode, we were able to do three separate interviews about medical school in different countries and the U.S., We have three guests, Drs. Alan Martin, Rosa Rodriguez, and Joseph Fariolo, who were interviewed by three of our Aggies Near and Far production crew, Caden Emery, Justin Shane, and Renee Ajera. After our interviews, the production crew also had some reflection. We hope you enjoy our show and learn a bit about what it's like to come to the U.S. to practice and research medicine from a different country.
0: Hi everyone, this is Caden and I'm here with Marina and today we're joined on call with Dr. Alan R. Martin. Dr. Martin is a neurosurgeon specializing in spinal surgery and an assistant professor at the UCD School of Medicine, where he works out of the UC Davis Spine Center. In addition, he is a leading researcher of advanced spinal cord imaging. He earned not only his MD, but also his BASc and PhD from the University of Toronto. Dr. Martin, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: So, let's start by talking about the University of Toronto. Uh, you obviously have quite a bit of history at that school, so what led you to study there
2: in the first place? Well, I grew up in the suburbs uh, in Oakville, and uh, wanted to move into the city. You know, when I left home at eighteen, just lived the city life at a big university. Uh, you know, Toronto's a lot like New York City and or Chicago in a lot of ways, and I just liked the the downtown culture. You know, really diverse. I was interested in music and art and things like that, and uh, did engineering school there. Met my wife there. You know, we. We ended up getting married and settled there, and then we both changed careers. So uh, we have a long history there and uh, did all my school there pretty much as well.
0: Could you speak a little bit more to that kind of multicultural environment?
2: Yeah, so Toronto is an interesting city. Uh, I think some magazine ranked it as the most multicultural city in the world, but it's certainly up there in terms of ethnic diversity. You know, Toronto is sort of a city of these different neighborhoods where a lot of uh, neighborhoods keep their own culture it's not so much about assimilation as as just bringing different cultures. And so you can go to Greek town and be, you know immersed in Greek culture, uh, little Italy, um, there's a, two Chinatowns or actually three Chinatowns now. Uh, it's just interesting that way, how it's kind of maintained uh, really, really strong pockets of culture. And you can kind of go and visit and celebrate these different areas and, you know really good food and things like that. So it's a, it's a interesting city.
0: And when you were doing your undergrad degree at University of Toronto and your graduate degrees for that matter, what was the student body and their attitudes toward the university and education like compared to, say, your students here at UCD?
2: I, I think there's a lot in common, actually, between uh, Toronto and, you know, Canada in general and Northern California in terms of an overall, you know, multicultural environment and being very welcoming to different cultures, you know, progressive thinking, uh, preserving the environment, and uh, supporting different segments of society. And so I think, I think there's a lot in common between the two, actually. I think that, that's something that attracted me to Northern California and UC Davis in particular. I think it's a very positive culture and inclusive, you know, just progressive.
0: And did that opportunity at UC Davis bring you out here, or did you always intend on working in the States? I
2: have to say um, it wasn't uh, something that I had intended on. It, it just kind of fell into place. You know, I was pretty open-minded. I knew that what I had trained to do, uh, there wouldn't be, you know, dozens of jobs available when I'm done my training. Unfortunately, that's just the way it is when you subspecialize in any given year, there might be a handful of jobs available for what you're specifically trained to do. So uh, I was open-minded about where I would go and my family was willing to come with me, thankfully. Uh, my wife and three kids. We uh, looked all over North America. There, there wasn't a great opportunity in Canada in the year I was ready. Um, there was a good job actually the year before that a good friend of mine got. And then I would have had to wait several years probably for the next good job in Canada. But there was you know a few good opportunities in the US. I looked at Northwestern and Cleveland Clinic we chose UC Davis over those two sites primarily because of just the culture in North, northern california and you know it just felt like the the right fit for us as a as a family
0: how did that shift go that process of going to medical school in canada and then moving to the us to continue your professional work
2: yeah well it was a super weird time to come so i'd say culturally it was in the middle of covid so my kids actually today is their first day in school for the past 12 months oh, wow. And uh, it's been actually, you know, kind of a culture shock because there's all the cultural stuff, all the political stuff going on with the election. There's been COVID and been quite restrictive, very, very bizarre year to, to, you know, come to a new country, but, you know, also a lot of fun. You know, we've been traveling a lot locally, going to the ocean, going to the mountains. We've skied almost every weekend in the winter. So there's aspects of it that have been unbelievable. And we've met really great people, neighbors made friends in spite of COVID, socially distanced friendships and things like that. So it's it's been unique and bizarre and uh, a lot of fun at the same time.
0: How do you feel the University of Toronto prepared you for the research you've conducted and plan to conduct in the future as well?
2: Yeah, I'd say University of Toronto is uh, a pretty special place. You know, I've, I, I look back on it fondly. It had unbelievable resources for research, especially as a clinician. Um, So our neurosurgery program, for example, in Canada is, you know, widely regarded as the top program, uh, largely because they guarantee funding for graduate school. So they pay us as a resident to pause from residency and do a PhD and pay us a resident salary. So even better than a good uh, graduate school, you know, fellowship. It really entices a lot of people to go into academic medicine and it attracts candidates who are interested in that path. And so that was certainly my case. I, I wanted to do academic medicine. I wanted to do technology research, and you know every resource I needed was easily available. Um, I ran sort of a big, complex clinical study using advanced MRI techniques, and we were able to do it, you know, quite rapidly. And I finished my PhD in three years. You know, learned a lot, and I had all the right teachers. So I, I love my time there, and I feel like I'm set up for success. I just you know need to take the next steps now which is a little harder when you're on your own, but it's going well.
0: Now, being an assistant professor, you obviously have another unique point of view. So I was curious, do you think that the structure of the education you received at the University of Toronto can kind of be seen in the way you teach
2: now at UCD? Well, it's a great question. I think I think my teaching style, you know, so far I've been teaching primarily residents, neurosurgery residents, and my teaching style is certainly reflected in in the way I was taught. I know actually one of my colleagues in my department is also trained in Toronto. And so we joke about the way we were taught, but it was very old school. In medicine, especially surgery, the old school culture is is quite harsh. Sometimes you have to find a way to scold the, the trainees a little bit in a gentle way that uh, makes them really realize, you know, how to do things the right way and do things safely to work really hard and, you know, motivate them without going over the top and discouraging them. So, you know, I was trained in a very old school uh, environment that was sometimes very negative. Uh, I'm not a very negative person. I try to be very positive, but I still use that in sort of a half-jokingly way to just have fun and, you know, be harsh, but then pull it back and uh, soothe soothe the bruised egos uh, as we go along, you know?
0: And then just one more question for me. This is kind of just something I was personally curious. When you're interacting with patients, do you find that the presence of the kind of private insurance mechanisms in the U.S. uh, make patient-physician interactions have a different dynamic than with the uh, single-payer system in Canada? I know it's kind of a very multifaceted question, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on
2: that. It's a challenge, and you know, there's a couple aspects to it. I don't want to sound, you know, tell tell a really sad story here, but uh, you know, I had one patient, for example, that had a, a serious spinal condition. Basically, she was losing the ability to walk and she did not seek medical treatment for seven years because she, she was uninsured. She had been divorced and uh, her husband, she had insurance for her husband and she lost it after the divorce. And basically, she's almost paralyzed. So I inherited her situation and, you know, it's heartbreaking and completely tragic that just wouldn't happen in, in Canada. Things like that really wake you up to to the fact that there are quite a few people who don't have health insurance, and just don't get the medical care they need. Sort of an extreme example, but um, I, I'm very aware of that. And I find that really uh, upsetting and something that I'd love to try to be part of uh, a, a change. Aside from that, just everyday surgery, you know, here we—it's a little bit of a fight between the doctors and the insurance companies to try to just get basic care approved, and sometimes that causes delays, and it's a bit of a nuisance. So there, there's several ways in which it's—it's it's mostly a nuisance to try to to deliver normal care. On the flip side, in Canada, with you know a single payer system, you end up with long wait lists because it's underfunded. So if someone needs back surgery it's about a two-year wait on average to get like a simple spine procedure Um, but it's all over the map if you find the right doctor you might get in in two months if you don't you might you know be delayed years so there's issues there as well they're just different issues so
0: well thank you I I appreciate you taking me up on that difficult topic Uh, I'll turn it over to Marina now
3: So I think a lot of times, um, definitely coming in into this conversation as a PhD student, I've gone, I studied abroad in Mexico, and I kind of have an idea of how difficult it is sometimes just logistically to go to another country, even within North America, professionally and then also academically So a lot of my questions are like very much logistics and, you know, how did you do this? Just so that we can give an idea uh, to other students if they are listening to this. Was it fairly difficult to do the process to transfer all of transcripts, knowledge, that sort of thing from University of Toronto? And then do you think that the process is similar kind of going back the other way if a student were interested in you know, either doing a residency in in Canada?
2: Well, those are great questions. Coming as, uh, you know, a new hire as faculty, you know, the first issue for me was getting a visa, getting licensed in California to work as a doctor. You know, the the, the issues around both of those specific topics are different if you're a student compared to faculty. So Mm -hmm. it's a different visa and it would be a different uh, application for a medical license if say you were a Canadian doctor coming here to train compared with uh, coming to be an independent practitioner. But both of those were a huge headache. (laughs) I I can't tell you, there's been dozens of headaches that, uh, you know, you just end up scratching your head. You can't believe that you're standing in line, for example, at the DMV for four hours, it was 110 degrees Fahrenheit. And I was stuck in a line trying to get my license because I'm not actually allowed to practice at the hospital without state issued ID, as one of the many, many hiccups that we faced. Um, uh, We also tried to bring our car, which was built in the United States in in Alabama, exported to Canada, and is now illegal to import to the United States because of one safety issue uh, that neither Honda nor any other aftermarket will fix. So now, we drove down here in this car that we can't import. And we actually have to ship it back to Canada or I have to personally drive it. So the, <laughs> the list of these crazy, bizarre requirements is, is long. Um, but yes, it's, it's difficult. And logistically, it, it takes up a lot of your time and energy. So lots of distractions, but the university has been supportive with my visa, my green card application, all the other stuff is just noise in the background, but it, does, it, it adds up to be a, quite a hassle when you when you get to all those details.
3: Continuing on with that um, kind of line of thinking, you were licensed in Canada to be able to um, do your training there post-graduation, and then you were licensed here in California. Could you tell us, are they pretty similar processes? Is there something that's glaringly different from them? Just describe that a little bit for us.
2: Yeah, sure thing. You know, you have medical licensing, which in Canada is... It's the National Board of Medical Examiners, NBE, whereas in the U.S. it's the U.S. MLE, the U.S. Medical Licensing Examinations. Um, so they're they're basically identical. You know the content is ninety nine percent similar, and you know there's a written and there's a clinical exam. But uh, about the half half of the states in the U.S. recognize the Canadian exam is equivalent, and the other half don't. So luckily California does. So that's one issue. Um, but at the national level, getting a visa to practice in the U.S., the main route to get a visa here is the H-1B, which requires the U.S. MLE, even if you have the Canadian exam. So I wasn't eligible because I didn't write the USMLE to get the normal visa. So I had to get a special visa. I came on an O-1, which is harder to get. Bottom line is there's, you know, many challenges. Also, the neurosurgery boards, I'm board certified in Canada, but I'm not eligible in the U.S. So I I could, unless the rules change, I could never be a U.S. board certified neurosurgeon. That turns out to not be a factor, but, you know, it's it's more of a title thing. But at some point in the future, you know, individual hospitals, some hospitals in the U.S. require uh, that you're U.S. board certified. So Canadian specialists like neurosurgeons just can't be. So yes there's there's some definite barriers luckily you know UC Davis is you know one of the half of the hospitals that allows me to practice without any barriers and you can get promoted and you know have a normal life a normal academic career so it's it, there's a lot of headaches but it turns out that that there's not really many impediments for me here at UC Davis so that's one of the things i had to research and Canadian graduates, about 40% of people who graduate, at least in Toronto, but I think Canada-wide in specialty surgery, end up in the U.S. So okay. there's a huge uh, population going in that direction. In the opposite direction, it's much, much harder to go from the U.S. to Canada, ironically. And I think that's primarily because Canada overtrains in specialty areas and under-funds for positions. So for every position, there's you know 10 candidates with an MD, PhD, 100 publications dying to get in the door. The level of competition is insane. It's a bit of a mess that way. I know for an academic spine neurosurgeon, I would have had to wait possibly five years for a job in Canada. And it's just not tenable. I, I had a career before, before all this, so I'm a bit older. It, it just wasn't reasonable for me to wait that long.
3: Yeah, actually, I was a little curious. You said you started in engineering. I also started in engineering. I'm still kind of along that line, but um, now I do a lot more policy. Do you think that starting in engineering changes how you are as a medical professional?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, I am much more of an engineer than I am of a traditional doctor personality. So, you know, I approach things more from a systems point of view, I think engineering education gives you a really good uh, foundation for problem solving and for approaching things as you know integrated systems, uh, seeing things just as uh, feedback loops and functional systems and things like that. So I think it, it's a great foundation. Uh, my knowledge of biology and of medical facts and things like that was, was very weak coming into medical school. So I knew I had uh, a lot of ground to make up in that direction a little known secret. I didn't even take high school biology. So I had to write a letter to do my prerequisite university biology courses, because I had no interest when I was a high school student. So being an engineer in medicine, I think is unique. But you know, it's all about diversity. So I think having engineers and then having people from a more traditional background, you know, that mix is really what what makes good ideas come together. And, you know, it's just another aspect of diversity, I think, in training and, and in thinking patterns that makes great things come together. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, definitely. Thank you for your time. And it was really great hearing about your experience and moving here and welcome to California. I know you've been here now, what, a year, you yeah. said? Um, yeah, that's true. But, Thank
2: uh, you so much. It's a pleasure speaking yeah. to you both.
4: Hello, I'm Justin and I'm joined today with Dr. Rosa Rodriguez. Rosa is currently um, a health science assistant clinical professor with the Division of Child Development and Medical Director of the High-Risk Infant Follow-Up Program at UC Davis. She recently completed her developmental and behavioral pediatric fellowship at the MIND Institute at Davis last year. She was born and raised in Santiago, Dominican Republic, where she also completed medical school at the Pontifica Universidad Católica Madre e Maestra. She has also lived in New York and North Carolina, working at the Herbert Irving Comprehensive Cancer Center and did her residency at the Vedant Medical Center. So Rosa, how are you doing today?
1: Very good. Thank you.
4: So my first question to you, Rosa, would be, you know, you moved to a completely foreign country, and especially you uh, entered the medical field, which is an extremely hard field to get into. And I just wanted to know if Did you plan on coming to the U.S. at the beginning? And if not, like, how did it come to be?
1: Not at all. My goal had always been completing medical school. So specialty specialty and fellowship, I always thought, or either Spain or Argentina. But I met my husband, and he... um, we met in high school, but uh, we, he also um, wanted to the medical school and he wanted to come to the, U- the United States. He wanted to have his training here. So I just followed him. That was a big shift for my plans, right? Because yeah. it was like preparing and then coming back to the Dominican Republic. But for him, it was like, no, 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 we're not coming back. We are, we finished, well, I mean, we <laughs> do what we need to do and we stay there. So, it was a definitely change of plans at basically at the last minute for me.
4: How difficult do you think it was, like since you diverted from your original plan and then moved to the u s like how challenging do you think it was?
1: It was very challenging first of all, during medical school in the Dominican Republic, we at that time I don't know right now it's been a million years now. At that time you don't get prepared to um, pass the USMLE boards right yeah. you 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 don't get that training you don't get that specific like you don't have the time off to study for for the steps while in medical school so all of that I had to do after graduating graduating from medical school it was like me preparing for those tests after I mean, years after basic science, right? Step one, it's like a lot of basic science, biochemistry, all of that. And I'm like, it's been years for me. Like, how am I supposed to remember all this? It was like studying basically all over. I did um, several courses to prep for um, the steps. And luckily I, I completed them and I was successful at it. So here I am. But it was like really, really hard.
4: And um, do you think there were like any cultural differences that you had to overcome when you came to the United States first? And are there any like specific examples you can provide of how Mm -hmm. you overcame those challenges?
1: Oh, definitely. Hispanic culture, it's very... Dominican culture, I I should say. Uh, We are very expressive, very loud uh, we like to touch right And here uh, the first thing that yeah. you uh, or that, that I noticed is like oh no it's like hi with a wave or shake of hands It's not like you're gonna go and, and give someone a kiss right So the same when treating patients everyone you you have that uh, certain distance that when I was training in the Dominican Republic, we did not have to have. And I think that it will be true for any culture. So you have to adapt to the different patients that you see and the different colleagues that you have to their specific, how they they treat you, right? So I am like I big and hug kisses and all of that. Of course, with the pandemic, that's cannot continue. But at, uh, at the beginning, it was like, okay, nice to meet you, and a kiss and a hug, and, and things like that. And with the years uh, and the experiences that you have here in the United States, you, you learn that that that's not always appropriate to you. So you, you definitely have to overcome those types of cultures. In regards to treating patients, I think very similar, depending on the uh, culture of the patient, you have to adapt to how. Um, how to manage them in the sense of some patients, some Hispanics patients, for example, again, citing Dominican culture, uh, they families may not want to have some disclosure or, or be for, for us as uh, medical professionals to have full disclosure with the patient. And that's something that here it's not acceptable, right? So the patient has to know everything that, that you are treating for, what are the possible options for treatment and things like that. In my culture, they, they'll try to protect the patient, especially if it's an uh, elderly patient and things like that. Some patients do have some um, stigma around certain diagnosis. They may not want you to write certain things in their uh, medical record and things like that. So everything has to be very tailored to the type of patient that you're seeing basically
4: did you face any language challenges when you came first moved to the US
1: yes definitely one for example one experience that i had when i first moved here i did have class, english classes growing up in throughout well, high school and things like that so i kind of knew a little bit of english before i moved here and then having to study for the USMLEs having to study for the CS and practice for the CS with this thick Hispanic yeah. accent of mine it was definitely a challenge at the beginning I could not like I would I would translate in my mind from Spanish to English before talking so you can imagine how stressful for me preparing to be, for the CS that was. Now we, medical students don't have to do that. That was uh, clinical skills, part of the USMLEs in which you had to treat patients and see patients like you would in a clinic, right? So you had ser- X amount of patients. I can't even remember how many now. X amount of patients that you needed to treat and you had only a certain amount of time to complete that visit, right? Yeah. And for me preparing for that, Translating from Spanish to English in my head and then trying to get everything that I needed to get to make it the, the diagnosis and write that note afterwards, it was very hard. It took me, it took me a while to get used to the English and that still I, I, I struggle with, with grammar and making sure that what I'm saying makes sense. So it's, it's a continuous struggle still.
4: How do you think your education in the Dominican Republic shaped you?
1: Well, definitely it shaped the way that I think and see the how I, I see the patients. We have a very different type of practice. It's uh, I, I like to call it war medicine. It's not really that bad, but it definitely, um, the resources that we have there are scarce. So due to my training in the Dominican Republic, a lot of the patients that I used to see in the hospitals, they had to buy their own uh, medications. Sometimes they own medical supplies and things like that, and bring this to the hospital in order for them to receive the care. So that's why I say like, it's kind of a a war type of medicine that we practice there. Also the, the way that we engage with the patients. It's very, how can I say that? It will be a, a lot of uh, patient and doctor interaction. It's very relationship-based type of interaction that you develop be, with the patients that you see there while in training. I will assume it, be, it would be the same feeling as the medical students that we have here. But there, they, the patients really see you as, as someone that can help them and, and, and guide them. So they really trust on, on you, even when you are a medical student.
4: Yeah, I, I can actually say the same thing, too, because um, I grew up in Thailand. And I could say that all my experiences with doctors there, they're really personal, like I've had the same doctor throughout my whole life that I've been visiting. On speaking of that, what do you think are like some significant differences you have noticed between the Dominican Republic and the United States specifically in the medical field
1: well as i mentioned before i think the resources are uh, it's it's a night and day difference that you'll see here for example you need a kit for a central line placement or sutures or something like that you it's like one and done right you discard yep. the rest even if, if it's not used in the Dominican Republic it's not that's not how we used to uh, do it or still do it so the things that you don't use you definitely save and and keep them for other cases anything that could be reused after sterilization will be used we, we do have a limited amount of resources and we have to do as much as we can with the little that, that, that you have. So definitely that's one of the big difference that I noticed in, in practicing medicine here. Another thing also kind of in the same line with resources, but at the same time with clinical judgment, because we don't have all the tools sometimes to make diagnosis and things like that, we definitely have to rely a lot in the clinical information that we have from the patient. So, for example, here you will get like images or uh, additional studies to determine for sure or to be certain specific cases, right? And there we may not have that type of imaging. We may not have the same um, information that you, you will get here. Specifically, MRIs are very expensive in the Dominican Republic. So not every patient, even if you want it or here, it's a kind of a protocol for certain things. Oh, everyone needs to get an MRI. If you get X diagnosis, you will get an MRI. If you have, if you have a suspicion, a suspicion for X Y O C, this is the imaging that you get there. You don't have that. So you have to rely a lot in, in other indicators.
4: So basically, do you think like it's more of like lack of funding in Dominican Republic compared to the U.S., like where doctors there have to rely on their judgments because they don't have the resources to obviously yeah. do some certain procedures?
1: Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. I think due to lack of that has a lot to do with the way that we practice in Dominican yeah. Republic. Yes.
4: Speaking about differences again. um, are there any differences that you have noticed between your colleagues who did their medical school in the U.S. and those who did it in other countries like Dominican Republic, perhaps?
1: At the beginning, you start approaching the cases. My approach was completely different to someone that was at the medical school here, right? So as I train in residency, my mind and the way that I see and treat patients of course shifted to the American or the North American way to um, treating the patients and, and making diagnosis and things like that but at the beginning it was like okay this is how I did it in the Dominican Republic as a medical student it, it was fine and it was okay here definitely the protocols that you have and things like that definitely help you fine-tune all, those, all that information that you have in, 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 in your mind that you are trying to, to get to. Yeah, so I, I think that's the way, that would be the only way that I, I think it would be different.
4: And on to my last question, from like all your years of living in the United States, what do you think is the best advice you can give to people looking to move here and pursue a career in the medical field?
1: Well, be persistent. And I think that's the most important advice that I could give anyone that really wants to complete their medical career here in the United States. You need to have a goal, set your goal. And and don't set short-term goals. No, no, no. You need to have short-term and long-term. You need to know what you're working for. You need to know where you're going to. So, if you prepare for that, for where you see yourself in ten years, fifteen years from now, you you work towards that goal and don't give up. Don't take a no for an answer. If someone says no here, okay, look somewhere else because that will be your persistence. What but and you're the and being determined is what's going to take you to the uh, next place. So I. I did struggle a little bit at the beginning, so I I have to say, preparing for the steps and not having research, uh, because we don't do research, or at that time, again, we didn't do much research uh, in the Dominican Republic, I didn't have any letters of recommendations from US doctors and, 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 and those things that are so important to have here. Or clinical experience in the U.S. either. That's why I looked for a job in research to try to have some papers, um, some publications, and then look for mentors that can help you and, and can write letters for you and can introduce you to others that can help you in your journey. It's very important. Knowing that if you are coming from uh, a, a medical school outside from the United States, having someone that can help you find research mentors and, and write excellent letters of recommendation for you. It's, it's, it's so, so important to, to do and to find.
4: Yeah, I think being persistent applies to any field And also finding connections, whether that be um, a mentor, a friend, obviously you can like find different opportunities from that. Well, it was great chatting with you, Rosa.
1: Thank you, Justin. Thank you for the opportunity.
4: Hi, everyone.
5: This is Renee here with Marina, and today we'll be talking to Joseph Ferriolo. Joseph is currently a plastic surgeon resident at UC Davis. He was born and raised in Sydney, Australia, where he completed medical school at the University of New South Wales. After that, he completed his research and research fellowship in pediatric plastic surgery at Boston Children's Hospital in 2018 and matched to the UC Davis program that same year. Hi, Joseph. Uh, Thank you so much for being here with us today.
6: Yeah, thanks so much for having me on the podcast, Um, and I'm excited to get talking a bit about medical school in another country
5: we're happy to start talking about that too so let's get right into it first of all could you tell us a little bit about medical school in australia and how it compares to what you know about medical school here in the u.s
6: yeah so it's um there are some big differences first up we have uh two main ways of getting into medical school there's the traditional four-year medical school after an undergraduate degree and then There's also the option to do undergraduate medicine, which is what I did. So undergraduate medicine implies that after high school, you go into a five or six year program that integrates an undergraduate degree at the same time as teaching medical school. It's a little bit accelerated in that sense, but at the same time, you spend a lot longer in medical school than the traditional four year person. So I would say the split between the medical schools is about 50-50 in Australia, so if you're coming out of high school, you can apply to about half the medical schools. And if you're finishing an undergraduate degree, then you have access to the other half of the medical school. So that's one of the big differences. I think another one is that we have a lot fewer medical schools. So it's unlike UC Davis, for example, where the medical students will be attached to that main UC Davis medical center for the most part. We actually covered a big geographic region in Sydney, Australia. So we rotated at quite a number of hospitals and drove quite large distances around the city as well but I think in terms of you know what it really comes down to and you know learning to be a doctor and the basics of taking a good history a good physical exam you know that's all consistent among every country as is the standard didactics portion um, in basic sciences so there's a little bit difference in the mechanics of medical school but I think it gets to the same point in the end.
5: Wow, that's really awesome and way different from like how it is here and so unique and like it works out. Yeah, Uh, I think
6: it's great if you're someone who knows what they want to do at a young age, then it helps you get there. And if if you discover that you are interested in a medical career a little bit later on after high school, then there's also that option as well.
5: Yeah, based on what you've noticed, do do you think people tend to go straight to medical school or do you think they like kind of take a break in between
6: yeah, I think um, it's increasingly common to take a gap year after high school in Australia, especially if you want to go into medical school. And in some regards, that gap year might be to make yourself a more competitive applicant. Um, and in other regards, people just want to take a gap year to have a break and travel and, you know, just after the peak of high school, not necessarily get thrown into an intense degree. So I think a gap year is always a good option. And, you know, in some sense, I did that with my research as well.
5: And for you personally, how was it going straight from high school to medical school right away?
6: You know, it's not the easiest transition. Anyone in medical school would tell you that the learning it can be very self-directed as can learning in residency. And it's, it's very true, even though it is an undergraduate degree. Uh, however, being an undergraduate degree, you know, the majority of people I was with were directly from high school. So the faculty knew that very well and the curriculum and the way didactics were designed did account for that fact. So, you know, they made every effort to make it as approachable as possible. But I think no matter what path you go into medical school, it is an entirely new way of learning. It's a, a large volume of content that you have to learn in a small amount of time. And whether it's coming from high school or an undergraduate degree, I, I think it's challenging. So at some point you just need to be thrown into it. <laughs>
5: Yeah, for sure. How do you think your education in Australia shaped you professionally and personally?
6: Yeah, I think it's a different health system. So, you know, some of my expectations and ideas of what healthcare should be uh, were certainly challenged and contrasted coming to the United States. You know, in Australia, we do have universal healthcare And so a lot of the insurance issues that I encounter as a resident and have to work around was something that I wasn't prepared for with my medical school. At the same time, in a system with universal healthcare, I think there's a lot more of an emphasis on decreasing costs. So things that we would routinely order in the United States, like a CT scan, needs a lot more discussion and a lot more convincing of your radiologist in Australia. So If you want to order a CT abdomen, you really have to put forth the case as to why this is an important test and why it's the best test and why it's going to help, how it's going to help the patient and change your management. And often, you know, this is just an an example of radiology, but the radiologist might come back and say, well, I don't think that's a good enough reason, or, you know, there's perhaps a cheaper test that you might want to try first. And so, in that way, I think that medical schools. In Australia, it certainly puts a lot more emphasis on history and physical exam, and then really makes you have to justify any labs or additional investigations that you'd like to order. And so that was a bit different as well. Coming here, it's, you know, when I'm on facial trauma call, we routinely get a, a face CT for every patient, and that's not necessarily true in my medical school or in Australia in general.
5: Uh, did you always see yourself starting uh, your career here in the U.S., or did you have other countries in mind?
6: Yeah, good question. I I honestly, for most of medical school, just anticipated that I would be staying in Australia, and more than anything, I think it was American plastic surgery that drew me to the United States. Once I knew that I wanted to do plastic surgery, I had a, a look at the various pathways into plastic surgery, and in Australia, they typically only train, you know, 10 to 20 residents a year that they take in. And in comparison, there's nearly 200 residents that match into plastic surgery each year in the United States. And I think, you know, the match system in the United States, I'm sure it is flawed in some aspects, but for the most part, it is merit-based. You know, there's a standardized test, the USMLE, uh, step one, step two, step three, that people may be familiar with. And those scores certainly are an objective measure of you as an applicant. Um, they look at things like research and other extracurricular activities. And in Australia, it, it just seemed like a lot of the people who matched into plastic surgery, were maybe they're just the people who waited the longest or knew some of the key plastic surgeons, the best. So I was attracted to the United States in the sense that I thought there was mer- more meritocracy. And then when I actually was interested in plastic surgery, I came and did uh, some sub internships. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with what they are, but usually in the final year of medical school, you get the chance to do some elective rotations in your specialty of interest, but typically you can do them at any hospital in the world that really would be willing to take you. And so I decided to go to the United States. I'd never been, and I've always been interested. And um, initially I went to Boston Children's Hospital for pediatric plastic surgery. And then I followed that with a rotation at UCLA uh, just for general plastic surgery. And especially at uh, Boston Children's Hospital, which is where I ended up working for a couple of years. As a research fellow, I really did fall in love with pediatric plastic surgery, craniofacial plastic surgery. And so it was basically as I um, pursued those research opportunities, at Boston Children's and got a job there, I then decided that I would like to stay. Um, and so then that's kind of how I found my way getting involved in the American match system and then eventually matching at UC Davis.
5: Yeah, so right now you're going through the residency program at UC Davis. Do you feel like it's a fairly diverse program with students from other countries or?
6: Yeah, it's actually interesting. Um, so we, it's a small program so we can only be so diverse we can't represent everyone there's only nine of us so we have in terms of um, diversity and as far as where people are from as far as i'm aware i think four or five out of the nine of us are born in a foreign country a couple of my co-residents born in asia uh, one in the middle east and obviously me in australia so we definitely have that diversity we do have a bit of educational diversity also Typically and historically, plastic surgery was surgery that was pursued at the end of general surgery training or at the end of another um, surgical training. And what people would do is uh, follow that up with a three-year plastic surgery education. And so we have three residents in that three-year program. The newer model of training involves the six-year training program that I'm in. And so the people going to the six-year program go into what's called an integrated residency and the general surgery program is basically integrated into the plastic surgery program. So uh, most of us will come directly from medical school. I came obviously after a bit of research, but the main the main idea of that is that we don't have to complete another residency. So um, there's a bit of diversity in terms of where we're from, definitely people from over the country and then, you know, where we came from educationally also.
5: Yeah, do you feel like you can relate to the other students from different countries and even with different educational backgrounds?
6: Uh, yeah, definitely. I think, you know, we are in a pretty sub-specialized field. And so I think just that alone gives us a lot more in common than we have different. And I, you know, I think it's been enriching to have people from different countries and different parts of, of the country. I don't think it's really put up any barriers at all. And, you know, I like to socialize with with my friends in the residency who have something different to bring, whether it's in terms of food or culture or anything like that. I think it just strengthens a residency. And even, you know, interacting with patients, it really helps. One of my co-residents did uh, some general surgery training in Southern California. And in that time, he learned how to speak Spanish. So he's great with a lot of our patients um, who are spanish-speaking only and then there are other other languages that some of our other residents speak as well that have really broken down some of those cultural barriers between our patients and allowed us to better communicate so i think it helps within the residency socially and then also ultimately with how we treat patients
5: do you plan on returning back to australia once you're done here or do you see yourself living somewhere else
6: Uh, Good question. So I think, you know, I think ideally, if visa circumstances permitting, it would be great to stay in the United States. I think it does have a unique set of academic opportunities that are hard to find elsewhere. You know, whether it's Australia or really any other English speaking country, it's very hard to find this density of academic centers um, that hire quite a number of plastic surgeons and allow them to do you know, not only plastic surgery as a service, but also plastic surgery, research and innovation. It's quite difficult to find that in other countries. And, you know, in Australia, I'm only aware of a couple of plastic surgery labs that are, you know, really making big contributions, which is very different to how it is here. This weekend, for example, I'm going to the American Association of Plastic Surgeons meeting and just looking at the scientific program there and how many different distinct um, academic centers are represented is very remarkable.
5: Uh, From your time in the United States, what do you think is the best advice you can give to people looking to move here and pursue a career in the medical field like you did?
6: Um, I think the most critical thing is to maybe two two most critical things. One would be to move to the United States It's very hard to really match into a residency without, you know, networking and making contacts. And, you know, importantly, just learning about the country that you will have to live and work in. And the other would be to get a mentor. And I think, you know, a good mentor is invaluable. You can find someone who can, you know, help you explore the scope of your specialty. But, you know, it's very common for foreign medical graduates like myself to do research just to strengthen the applications to get in because it is seen as a negative in your application to not be from an American medical school. And just having a mentor can really guide you through a lot of the nuances of the process. I think being an American in an American medical school, sometimes you don't realize the advantages you have, even if it's just in the USMLE exams and being able to form a study group. And, and study for those exams effectively or if it's about doing the correct rotations and getting letters of recommendation some of that stuff is not as straightforward as a foreign applicant because you just don't get those cues from your medical school or your environment in general so I think you know move to America get a mentor and it sounds like a bold step but interestingly I think a lot of people are open to receiving emails um And just listening to your story and if they can't mentor you directly they're usually pretty happy to refer you to someone who can um so i would i would encourage people to you know read actively in your specialty see who's writing about what you're interested in and then contact them to see what opportunities they may have or know about
3: great yeah i have a couple follow-up questions actually Mm -hmm. um thank you so much for all the knowledge that you've been sharing i think you know, a lot of people can really relate to a lot of the questions that you raised in terms of the process of coming to a new country and building up that network. And then on that same note, uh, what's it like being here? Do you have, you know, a pretty firm social network now that that you've been in Davis a while? And then how is it being pretty far from home
6: and is is that difficult? Yeah, so um, in terms of social network, it has been challenging at times. You know, firstly, when I moved to Boston, I didn't necessarily know anyone. Um, So that took, you know, spending a couple of years there, it took me a while to build up a social network and maybe the stereotype's true, maybe Californians are just a bit friendlier than people in the Northeast, I'm not sure but definitely friends through work, friends through, you know, shared experiences. Definitely made a lot of lifelong friends with some of the people who were also research fellows at the same time as me or who were residents. So definitely easy to set up, you know, those kinds of relationships when you share something in common, like interest in the same specialty. Moving to California, you know, I think residency is very easy to make friends in. Typically, you're around bunch of people the same age as you everyone well nearly everyone for the most part just moved to that city also so the way things are set up you know it's it would be hard not to make friends and so yeah being in sacramento for nearly three years at this point um, i do have a great social circle unfortunately one of the realities of residency is that every year people graduate so you do lose friends along the way but hopefully with the new people who come in, you, you make some new ones also. And sorry, I, and, I knew you had a second part of the question. Yeah.
3: The, the second part is how do you stay connected back home? You know, I, I think uh, for some international students, either the flight or, you know, the time difference isn't so bad depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. How, how's that to Australia and um, how do you manage that?
6: Yeah. So You know, I think the biggest challenge obviously has been COVID in the, in the recent times um, that has prevented me from being home for the last two years or so. But typically I would, you know, aim to go home about once a year, maybe a little more frequently if possible. The flight to Australia can certainly be a barrier. You know, it's about 14 or 15 hours from Northern California uh, to Sydney airport. So that can, you know, that's, it's it's obviously not possible to do a weekend trip or anything like that and the cost can also be a huge barrier but i think with things like you know just just modern communication technology um i have whatsapp group chats with my family facetimes you know all that kind of stuff really just like how i would with anyone else the good news is that for the most part the time zones are so different that they nearly come back to each other so australia is about 19 hours ahead which basically means we're kind of just five hours ahead, but in the previous day. So it's not too bad um, in that regard either. And then, you know, hasn't worked out so far in residency, but definitely my research fellowship, I had family um, come visit me also. So hopefully when, you know, COVID things clear up, physical visits are a bit more realistic. But in the meantime, it is, you know, it is very plausible to stay in contact with your family and friends at home.
3: Great. Well, thank you so much, Joseph. And we are really excited about this episode. And I'm sure that a lot of people can learn something from what you shared. Yeah,
6: thanks so much for having me. And again, uh, thanks for forgiving me uh, for my lateness. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I hope that, you know, people do listen to this and uh, and especially, you know, the other interviews that you have uh, with some of the professors with their knowledge about foreign medical education. It is you know, it can't like like we covered, it can be socially and academically challenging uh to make the move to another country. But I think like I said, if you can try it out, move move to the United States for some time, and once you learn that you like it, there are, you know, some good strategies to follow to make it work for you.
5: Thank you so much. That was really awesome to hear from you and I really enjoyed hearing your story and just all your experiences was wow. Thank you.
6: Yeah, thanks so much. Fantastic. Yeah, definitely.
3: Great, so those interviews were all really interesting and I think they gave us a lot to think about and mull over and so now we wanted to hear a little bit back from our interviewers, Kate and Renee and Justin and myself about what we thought about people's responses and what it made us think about about global education in general and med school in particular. So Kaden what were some of the things that jumped out to you during each of the interviews that we did?
0: I thought it was really interesting the different backgrounds everybody had coming into medical school it was it was interesting seeing how um, it could kind of be like an unexpected route so, uh, Dr. Martin obviously coming in as an engineer and then switching to be a go down the surgical path and uh, Dr. Rodriguez not even planning to have moved to the United States, but um, having made that transition nonetheless, uh, it was just really interesting, the, the themes of kind of persistence, and obviously there's a lot of logistical uh, traveling uh, obstacles that can come in their way, but it was it was really interesting hearing everybody's um, process going through all those logistics and and you know, coming out on the other side better for it and having, having learned a lot from uh, those various challenges, but be they uh, linguistic or, you know, uh, just cultural in general. And it was pretty inspiring.
3: Awesome. Thank you. And Renee, uh, what were some things that were either specific to the interview with Joseph or generally what you got from the other two interviewees as well?
5: Yeah, what I thought was really amazing is, like, it was a good representation of, like, maybe different backgrounds of their different countries of origin, but, like, talking to them and hearing their stories, it really felt like you can't, like, really pin down, like, any experience to any region, and, like, it really seemed like everyone had their own experience, and it was really amazing just to listen to it. All these people from, like, outside the U.S. coming here to pursue a certain career, They had such different stories, but yet they had also so many similar things, such as struggles and trying to find a mentor. At the end of the day, it was everyone kind of had the same similar mindset and had the same amount of passion for the field that they were entering above all differences. It was just really amazing to see that.
3: Yeah, actually, you know, it's really interesting that you said that it's, you know, the observations from the different interviewees isn't specific to a particular region because I think it was really interesting to see how uh, Joseph was basically saying, okay, you know, one of the drawbacks of public medicine is that you don't have the option uh, to rerun tests and, you know, order tests that might be kind of extra, and you have that same issue in the Dominican Republic, even though it's very low resource, it's kind of for a different reason is that they just don't have access to some of the equipment that's available. So you're running into these similar problems of you know, not ordering a specific test, but they're for very different reasons. Um, and then also, I think that there's a lot of difficulties in different countries uh, based on specialties that could be resource-based or could be based on the focus of that country um, just coming up with a preference for, you know, whether or not they're funding the education for that type of specialty. And Justin, what, what were some of the things that came up either during your interview with Rosa or some of the other interviews that you listened to?
4: Yeah, I think the most interesting thing I found was that since all three of our, our guests came from three different countries and started working in the U.S., they all face cultural differences in the country and also cultural differences in the medical field. Like you mentioned how Rosa described when she was working in the Dominican Republic, there was a resource issues that made her had to conduct her work a little bit differently. And when she came to the U.S., there was a whole complete shift and she didn't even plan on going to the U.S. first and yet she overcame it and is now very successful.
3: And I think, you know, it's really interesting too because on the one hand, there is maybe some sense that not ordering these tests might be detrimental in some way or not having this equipment might be detrimental. But then we can also think about kind of the flip side of that Right. So in the Dominican Republic, in the spaces that Rosa was uh, operating in, basically, they had to sometimes use materials that here you might just throw away. And we can think about that actually from like a sustainability standpoint, that's actually better than just opening up a package that maybe has, I don't know, 50 feet left of gauze or something like that. And because it's open, now you have to throw it away here in the U.S., Whereas you know, in the Dominican Republic, they they reuse those materials, and I actually had that same experience when I was working in a lab in Mexico City. We were reusing pipettes, um, and what we would do is, once you use the glass pipettes, then you would wash them, um, rinse them, let them dry, and then we would autoclave them. And here, those things are a dime a dozen, and you just toss them out. And on the one hand, it was great because we're reusing those and not just throwing away them away all the time. But then on the other hand, it's more dangerous and there is some issues with still cleanliness. And for example, when I was washing the Pipette's ones, uh, I broke one and it like lodged in my, in my finger. And so there's kind of these many different issues of resources, practices, culturally appropriate uh, standards, all of that. Um, So it's really interesting to see how that changes and and also understand that it's not that one is necessarily better than the other. Um, And I think, you know, obviously we have kind of the quote unquote survivor bias right? that all of the people who we interviewed are people who came and stayed in the US to be medical doctors. So their experience is gonna be really different and the things that they care about in the field of medicine are gonna be really different than somebody who is from their country, who stayed in their country and practiced medicine in their country. Um, And so I think that we always have to have that kind of in the back of our mind. Well, thank you guys. And I really appreciated all your effort on this episode. So until next time, (laughs) this is Aggies Near and Far.
0: Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you all enjoyed this episode of Aggies Near and Far, a podcast dedicated to fostering global education for all at UC Davis. The information contained in this podcast represents the views and opinions of the original creators and does not necessarily represent the views and opinions of the Aggies Near and Far organization. We are always looking for students interested in furthering our mission to foster global education for all at UCD, If you are a student who has studied abroad, a student from another country, or are just interested in intercultural exchange, we'd love for you to share your ideas for episodes with us. We're especially looking for students excited about sharing their experiences, conducting interviews, and illustrating their respective cultural events and significance. If you'd like to join our mission or just know a bit more about us, you can look us up as Aggies Near and Far on UC Davis Aggie Life, Facebook, or Instagram, or send us an email at aggies.near.far at gmail.com. This episode and others can be found on our Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher.